This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. <laughs> I'm Danielle Henderson. And I started the podcast and I screwed <laughs> it up, people. This is our second take because apparently when I said, hey, everybody, I went, hey, guh. <laughs> hey, guh. What does that even mean? It's like short for hey, girl. Hey, guh. <laughs> hey, guh. It sounds like something that they... Uh, have painted on the wall at the entrance of Ikea. <laughs> that tells you like all of this stuff in the different languages. Anyway, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you today? Good. I got to tell you, loving those guns, the guns out. So we're, uh, we're recording in closets. Like, well, you're in a nice <laughs> office. You're yeah. in a beautiful decorated photos hanging on the wall office. I am in no furniture, though, so it's oh, kind of creepy, but it still looks incredible. I oh, am in you. an actual sweat box. <laughs> like, I don't even <laughs> have to build a sauna in my house because there's no air conditioning in this house. So every room is a sauna. So I'm in the closet where the baths are right above me, <gasps> like the attic entrance uh-huh. is in this closet. Um, and it is just and it's carpeted and it is just like a fucking sweatbox. And if you don't know, we can't have fans or anything on while we're recording, obviously, because it would make sounds in the mic. So the first person to develop a soundless fan is getting all of my money for the rest of my life. I have got my sleeves rolled up. Yes. I am already just my I'm sweating and my glasses are fogging up like um, Elijah Wood in Sin City. Like, you can't even see my eyeballs, like the fog from my damp skin is just making my glasses unbearable. They're slipping everywhere. I'm just taking them off. I'm taking them off. Listen, bats are blind. Aren't bats blind? <laughs> I believe so. Why Why do I always bring up animals like every episode and then I don't know a goddamn thing about them? I need to stop doing that. That's a bad habit. It's how we learn. Yes. It's how we learn. You think I knew a goddamn thing about ocelots before we brought them up on the show? I mean, I've questioned groundhog like worth. I'm like, what are groundhogs worth? I've t- we've talked about ocelots, bats. We we get things confused. Oh, completely. It doesn't help that I live in a like the fucking wilds of the country in New York. Like every day, there's a different animal that pops up in my life. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's I mean, listen, now that Chauncey and his family have been relocated, you've got like a whole coterie. Is that the oh, right yeah. vocab word? Um, you've got an entire spread of animals. It's like wild kingdom <laughs> over really there. Is. Well, what I was really getting to, though, 
by complimenting your guns, even though the whole reason why the guns are out is because the sun is out in your closet right now, <laughs> um, is that you, your tattoos are showing and I know you have tattoos, but like, I hardly, we, we don't see them often on the, yeah. on the podcast when we're recording. Cause we have shirts on normally. Um, yeah. And now I'm topless also, P.S., guys. Oh, are you going to be the, the first topless podcast? <laughs> and the first topless and least sexy. <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, her top's off. And it is just a river of sweat running under those fucking boobs. <laughs> that is OK. Listen, our, our new tagline is the first topless podcast. Now, it doesn't even matter if we actually don't get topless. Nobody will know. Isn't Nobody that genius? <laughs> so, but here's the thing about tattoos. So it's not as if I forget that you have tattoos, but obviously when you're wearing your shirt, like uh, you're in the E Street band in the 80s, I'm like, oh, she has tattoos. They're so awesome. I feel like thank you. I feel like people are going to want us to post pictures now so they can get a, a sense of what we're talking about. And it's not happening because no. this is like if we post a photo, I feel like Annalise and Alexis will sue us. Like they'll go to write to HR and be like, see, we told you this is what we have to deal with with these motherfuckers. They're they wanted topless. the first topless podcast and <laughs> we refused. How long have you had tattoos? I got my first tattoo when I was 16. OK, on my ankle. And it was a terrifying experience. I wrote about it in my book. Uh, the guy who gave me that tattoo was basically like a a proto dog, the bounty hunter. And he had Ooh. a gun on a holster on his fucking hip oh, no. and like was very monosyllabic and scared me into getting a tattoo that I don't even know that I wanted. I knew I wanted mm -hmm. one, but he was like. Um, if you, I originally thought I was going to get a needle and thread because I was going to be a fashion design student and I really wanted to get something nice and delicate. And then I went in and he's like, uh, yeah, that's a custom job. And we have to, I have to like draw that out. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just get this one then. <laughs> <laughs> Which not the way you should get your first tattoo, or it is exactly the way you should get your first tattoo. Um, but then when I went back to college, when I was 30, one of the first things I did with my student loan was get a half sleeve. <laughs> yes. Yes. We talked about the foolishness. Uh, on our latest bonus episode, we talked about yeah. the foolish ways we used to spend our student loan money. So, <laughs> and, and guess guess who's paying interest on that shit today? <laughs> <laughs> guess who is didn't think about it, but is genuinely never going to pay this tattoo off. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted it, and I designed it, and I got like you know, it's like this kind of I don't know. I, I might post picture of it, but it's a half sleeve, and I, I added to it. Um, I've, it's actually two tattoos that I will eventually connect with the background. But mm. the bottom part was an addition um, when I moved back to New York after I got divorced. And it's a pair of boxing gloves flanking a banner that says, Eat Lightning, Crap Thunder, because it is my favorite line from Rocky. Oh, man. Love that. And it was one of my favorite movies growing up. Yeah. So I think we have a Rocky connection to this <gasps> episode. I think we oh, might. Oh, oh, oh. I think we do. But you you don't have any tattoos. No, ma'am. As a child of the 90s, how is that possible? I, I have no idea, to be honest, because everyone I know has tattoos. I'm truly one of the only people 
that out of my group of friends that doesn't have a tattoo. And, and is it like you just never wanted one or you just couldn't figure out what you want? Because it is a commitment. Like you do kind of ha- I would not recommend just going in and picking something off a wall and being intimidated by a man with a gun into getting yeah. one. So it is a commitment. But is yes. it just that you're like, I don't want to do that. No, no desire. I think it's a combo platter of a couple things. One, I think it's money like for some reason Mm -hmm. i'm like oh my god tattoos are super expensive but that leads to my second reason which is that i think it has to do with my parents my parents Mm. being like i don't even know like i i I feel like they would be mad at me if i got a tattoo but then my mom ended up having a tattoo so it's like this is what i want to talk about so you're afraid you 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 were worried that your parents would be mad at you for getting one. But then your mm-hmm. mom got one later in life, too. Right. Like she didn't get one when she was like 10 or 11. No, no. She got one in her mid 50s. <laughs> oh, tell me about this tattoo. And I know she listens. So hello, Mrs. Ishiriko. Hi. We love you. Mom, I'm going to tell them about your tattoo, which she had done by a ex-Marine. Oh, what? who opened a tattoo parlor in the shopping center where she used to have her gift shop in Florida. And he gave her a tiny little dolphin that looks like it's coming out of like a spray or something. It's like a, I don't know what What? it's doing. Is it coming out of a wave or it looks like it's coming out of like a, a cloud, a spray cloud or something. And the one thing that I do mention to her is that it looks like it was done in prison because it's like, maybe it was a quickie job. I don't really know, mom, you know, you're going to have to let me know, but it looked it like right out the gate. It looked like a, an old faded prison tattoo, which I'm like, dude, that's kind of tight. Like it didn't have that, like, you know, new tattoo look. It looked bad from the jump. So I think that's pretty impressive. Wait a minute. Where on her body is this tattoo? Oh, my God. It's on her ankle. Where else do you think it could be? Where can a, where can a dolphin tattoo be on a middle-aged woman? Uh, lower back. Lower back or ankle. I, <laughs> or toe. I guess toe is an option. absolutely obsessed with the fact that your mom got a tattoo in a shopping mall by a Marine of a dolphin. Like every step of this escalates into me loving it more and more. It's the trashiest little package you could ever unwrap. (laughs) It's like so funny. And like, but you know, it looks great on her. I mean, she just kind of looked like she's had it since she was 18, even though she only got it like not too long ago. So I think that's very impressive. And the guy is gone. No idea where that guy went. I think he his shop was around for like two months and then he split. So that's an extra bit of magic for you guys in that story. But yeah, I I never had I never got one. So but do you think you would get one now if now that you know that your mom is not only down with tattoos, but down with like rough tattoos, <laughs> would you get one? See. It's funny because now in my in my later years, is that that sounds awful in my later that is years, not accurate. <laughs> no, in my mid years, um, in my mids, I'm in my mids. Um, <laughs> I actually do flirt with the idea of actually getting one. Um, but up until now, because here's, the, I think, the third reason why I haven't gotten one is because when I think about tattoos, I'm like, do I like 
anything enough to get a tattoo. Right. You know, because when I really look myself in the mirror, I'm like, do I actually really, really commit to the stuff that I like? Like if I had gotten a tattoo when I was 19, I would have the worst bands on my body. Like it would be the worst bands. And I mean, at the time, I the way I felt about them, I would have been Mm -hmm. like live or die for them. I would have gotten a tattoo, but then like, like maybe not even a year later, it would have been totally over. So I just feel like I don't even know if I like anything enough to get a tattoo. Having said that, if I was, if I was going to do something now, it would be like something related to my family or a pet or my heritage or something like that. But no more bands, no band stuff. Never Mm -hmm. a good idea. And it's, it's, it's a good question. It's like, do do I like anything enough or, in my case, do I just not care about my body enough? Because <laughs> then you can make anything work. You're like, I, this bag of bones, mark it up. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and then it just becomes a fun game. <laughs> I had this old friend a million years ago who used to say the same shit about tattoos. He's basically like, don't give a fuck about my body like don't care what's on here he like would walk he had he had full sleeves full full body tattoos he would get the most random shit and he didn't care which is kind of amazing i think that's actually a refreshing way to look at it. it's like the complete opposite end of the spectrum right oh totally totally and i can i can see you getting like like something meaningful like yes your family or your heritage but also like a plant like you love plants so much and you're great at gardening, like a beautiful flower would look awesome. Or like it's a little Sophie, a little Sophie face. That's true. I think it would look great. It would look great. If, if you ever decided, I think that there are a couple of things now that you probably do love enough to like live with. And here's the other beautiful thing. You can put it on a part of your body that you don't see. Put it on your back. Put it yeah. on the back of a leg. You won't ever even see it. Yeah, I know. If I, if I did get a tattoo of Sophie, my dog, it would have to be funny that is one of the most photogenic dogs i've ever seen and has the most personality i have ever you post pictures weekly that are hilarious of that dog i know i was like what if i got a tattoo i get get an artist rendering of the time she stole half of a popeye's biscuit from my nephew and she guarded it and like growled at anyone that came within a foot of her and I could get that as a tattoo. Like I can get like a half eaten biscuit, like yes. maybe on one shoulder blade. And then on the other shoulder blade, it's my dog with like her <laughs> teeth out protecting the biscuit. See, whether you know it or not, you're ready for a tattoo because that's tight. That is tight as hell. And then you're in the gym and you're fucking Bob Seger's T-shirt and people are just seeing a fucking biscuit and a dog you are nobody's fucking with you they're like we don't know what this shit is about but that that those tattoos mean business see that's the other reason i keep thinking of reasons not to get them um the other reason is that i am that stupid to get a tattoo of some shit like that like i'm like what's the funniest thing i could get put it on my body oh that's what you totally should you think the fact that i put crap i tattooed the word crap on my arm (laughs) but hey it's from an iconic film at least it's anchored in something you know it makes me laugh when you hear sometimes when i get tattoos my first thought is like all right 
when I'm 88 and my skin is melting off of my bones <laughs> and I'm just like someone's turning me over with a stick in bed to prevent me from getting bed sores or something. And they're going to pop that stick under me and f like fucking hitch me up. And then they're going to see fucking a half biscuit and a cute ass dog. That's going to make their day. <laughs> They'll be like, this woman has stories. The, the suspect had a half biscuit. What is that? What is that? Snow? Well, I don't know. We don't know what that is. The other side is clearly a dog. You could level it up, throw the Popeye's logo in between it. Free chicken for life. Free chicken for life. First person in line for those new Sammies. Just level it up. Be like, look, I got my dog, Popeye's logo, biscuit. Who's really who's dedicated to this franchise now? They might give you a store. Just do it. <laughs> Nothing matters. It's a very nihilistic. What if I just got the store tattooed? What if I just got like, yeah. you know, the like uh, architectural design of like a Popeye's franchise? <laughs> Let's just do the stupidest shit. Let's just really go for See, broke. I, you know what I love about this is this. You got to put something like that on your back or a place that has some real estate, because as soon as you find out that like. The owner of Popeye's, well, let's say the owner of the Popeye's franchise one day, like, puts a bunch of kids in a bus and drives them underground, and, like, covers <laughs> them up and just, like, buries them. <laughs> and then you can just, like, cross out Popeye's and put a little school bus tribute underneath. <laughs> like, it could just be, like, an actual story. The more you go. <laughs> and then one of those kids from that bus, once those, because they'll, they'll get out, they'll be saved. Yeah, they'll be safe. Yeah. He'll go, the owner will go to jail, and then <laughs> one of those kids will grow up to be like in a band that writes music about their experience being kidnapped by the Popeyes owner. Uh huh. And then you tattoo their band lyrics right underneath it. Boom! Full narrative. What's up? Oh my god! This is the kind of dumb shit I do with my body. I don't Listen. care. <laughs> I love this multi generational tattoo idea that just evolves over the course of decades. That has this anchored in a Popeye's crime. So <laughs> can we call this episode anchored in a Popeye's crime? <laughs> <laughs> you come up with the best episode titles ever. Let's get serious. You say them. All I do is point it out. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, how are we going to tie the tattoo <laughs> conversation into the theme? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like. Let's see. If, let's see if we can do it. So I feel like because you're going first this week mm. Mm. and I feel like your movie is possibly one of the most depressing things I've ever seen. And what better time to get a tattoo than when you are incredibly happy or incredibly sad? <laughs> oh, my God. That's so foreboding. <laughs> well, let's talk about the theme, shall we? Yeah. We definitely should. I will say that this this time, I feel like we wanted to talk about the movies. And then we were like, how do we put them in a theme? I think that's yes. how it worked. That's how it worked. Right? And you came up with the theme, yes. which is the theme is. Movies about sports. But not really. <laughs> with the ex with the question mark, with the question mark. <laughs> I think there's an ellipses in there, like movies about sports, dot, dot, dot. But not really? Question mark. I think that is the actual legal theme name. That's, 
the government name of this, <laughs> this pod. <laughs> yeah. So we had different reasons, I think, for wanting to talk about these movies. We put them together in a theme about sports, but not really. There's a ton of great sports movies. The world has seen so many sports movies. You've got a sports movie tattooed on your arm, right? This is real. And of course, most of them, if not all of them, are about something more than just like the literal play by play of the sport or whatever's happening, right? But I feel like our two films in particular, they're technically sports movies, but there's like something else going on where it's almost oh, yeah. like you forget that it's about the sport in a weird way, right? Oh, completely. Because I, I originally thought like, I was like, oh, I could do something like Hurricane or something, you know, that was kind of very specifically tied to the sport. But these two in particular, these movies are sports are so tangential <laughs> to the plot yeah. that like in, in one in one instance, I feel like there's an entire 40 minutes of the movie that's the sport is not even discussed. Yes. Yes. At all. So, yeah, these were kind of uh, some esoteric choices uh, that were very, very well suited to the theme. Yeah. And they're both 70s films, which I think is really interesting. We're going to get into it. Let's yes. jam. Let's fucking go. All right. I'm going first. Uh-huh. All right. Been up since 630 in the morning. It's going to be Same. great. Same. Let's I do know. it. Let's do it. All right. So my movie for the theme. Movies about sports, but not really, is a movie from 1972. The screenplay was written by Leonard Gardner from a book that he wrote, directed by John Huston, and it's called Fat City. Do you know what I mean? You're the only son of a bitch worth a shit in this place. I appreciate that. I mean, because there is something I really like about you. Like you too. Yes. And we got the motorcycle rev. Yes. <laughs> the fucking motorcycle rev to talk about this very bleak film. Yo, this movie fucked me the fuck up. I will just say that. <laughs> I know. Well, and I will tell tell everybody out there right now. Now. If you thought that our theme for this week was going to be about Chris Christopherson, you were sort of right, but also fucking wrong. Sorry. You're just wrong. <laughs> yes, it's true that he sings the opening song to this film, which is playing throughout the film, even at the end. But it's not about him. The theme is not about Chris Christopherson. So put that to bed. He is the bleak soundtrack. <laughs> For this movie. <laughs> so right off the bat, I want to talk a little bit about John Houston because I have to. Um, he directed this film, Angelica's Father. Yeah. We, we've we've talked about Angelica Houston before on this podcast. Dynastic. Dynastic, Dynastic. family of rats. <laughs> of rat actors in the graveyard shifts. <laughs> The great, the great rats of gra graveyard shift. Um, so John Houston, sorry about it. He made the most famous classic movies of all time. Some of them anyway. Yeah. Um, he made the Maltese Falcon. Hello. 
the treasure mm-hmm. of the Sierra Madre, which don't even get me started. Don't every granddad from here to I can't even pick a place on a map because it is a global sensation amongst granddads. Yes. And me. And Millie. <laughs> and me. <laughs> and all the grandpas are like, get out of here, woman. We're not talking about how hot this guy is. Can't you see he's doing some important shit? <laughs> We're talking about a heist in the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, John Houston made the African Queen, The Misfits. Hello. These are iconic mm-hmm. classic films, right? And the thing about John Houston is that a big theme of his films is what a lot of people have called the impossible quest or like Ooh. a the doomed journey, right? And he does a lot of movies about underdogs and losers, right. probably because of the doomed journey thing, wouldn't you say? But I think that th- all of this informs Fat City, which, of course, I'll get into shortly. But starring in this film is Stacey Keach, one of my all-time favorite actors of the 70s. In fact, he's still around. He's still working because he does the voiceover for American Greed on CNBC. Yes. Oh, snap. Right? It's basically the fight. Yes. It's basically, if you haven't seen it, it's basically financial true crime for those who celebrate. Tonight, the secrets of a man who sacrifices his loved ones for money. <laughs> he makes it, he just gives it that extra, like, fuck like it, yeah. Ooh. He's got it. It's like a little keyed up and it's, it's Stacey Keach, which I think is great. And I personally think he's such a great actor and he's just yes. someone who I think is just completely underrated, which means that it is my ministry to tell people how great he is, of course. And ask me about my crush on 70s Stacey Keach, because I'll tell you. <laughs> Do we even have to ask or are we just going to get the business anyway? <laughs> Listen, I got to tell you one time, like a while ago, somebody on Twitter snitch tagged him. <gasps> As I was pontificating on his 70s hotness in like a tweet, and I'm sure his grandson or whoever runs his <laughs> Twitter account, like smash ah. that like button to make a bitter middle-aged woman feel good. But I just wanted to say I appreciate that. Whoever did that, I appreciated it. But I mean, like the last time somebody snitch tagged, it worked out. We got an email from DB Sweeney, but it was just a thing where I was like, why the fuck are you going to snitch tag on me? This guy's like 82 years old. (laughs) He genuinely does not care about what anyone thinks anymore. (laughs) He's done. He's like, oh, this random stranger on the internet thought I was hot 50 years ago. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> Get in line. Everyone <laughs> yeah. did. Get in line. But uh, also starring in Fat City is the legend, Susan Terrell. Unbelievable in her own right. She was in some of the best, weirdest films ever. Um, just cult movie royalty for me. Honestly, I mean, she's such a great actress. She was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Fat City, which is amazing. I went to her house in Pasadena when she was living there. It was probably about 10 years ago. And she lived in one of those like bungalow courts, which are like the greatest ever. Um, I wish they had them here um, in Atlanta, but um, it was the best day of my life. Like she was so fun. How um, did this happen? She she was a, she did art and she there was a giant... Um, painting she did of like lee marvin i mean i just was like she's the best um 
she was the best. She passed away not too long ago, but um, I love her so much. She's so good in this movie. So the setting, though, of Fat City, I think is really important to talk about, Mm. too, because it takes place in Stockton, California, which I think is east of San Francisco and south of Sacramento, I think. Mm -hmm. A one-sentence synopsis of Fat City. You ready? I'm ready. A former professional boxer who desires a shot at redemption keeps getting sidetracked by his demons and bad choices, even when he's briefly inspired by a young boxing upstart he discovers. That is incredible! I actually worked on that. took me like 10 minutes to really refine it, but... I was going to say, my one-sentence synopsis this week, I was shrugs to funk. (laughs) So I appreciate there's a lot going on in these movies. So I I thought you did a great job with that. So Fat City is mostly centered around Billy Tully, who is played by... Stacy Keach, as I just said, and in the in the film, it's understood that like a year prior, he was a pro boxer making money, happily married. So now at the beginning of Fat City, he's out of shape, <laughs> living in like a St. Mark's Hotel type place. He's broke. He's barely got enough money to support his drinking habit. And his wife has left him. OK, And he keeps getting fired from jobs. So he begins showing up each morning near the farms where they hire day laborers to come and like work in the fields. And, you know, he's just doing this to sort of bide his time until he can like get back in the ring and get his wife back and return to his former glory. Right. Yeah. But it's kind of hard to visualize because he's in a really bad place. If you're watching him in the bars, if you're watching him in the hotel, you're like, Jesus, dude. All right. Well, you're going to really have to focus if you want to do all this stuff. Okay. The first note I wrote about this movie is he looks how America feels right now. Yes. (laughs) Like he's just on the edge of just giving up. Yes. And like the underwear is saggy. Yeah. Like there is the elasticity has gone out of his life in every possible way. Yeah. The underwear is strugs to funk, as you would say. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he's like he's making these sort of like half ass attempts, though, to like get back into the ring. So he shows up at the gym one morning and he sees this like really young boxer named Ernie, who is played by Jeff Bridges and. Holy shit, Jeff Bridges, he's so baby-faced. and Such a baby. He's right off the heels of the last picture show. And in Fat City, he's just at the gym kind of messing around. He's not even a real boxer, but um, he's, like, really athletic, and he's really green, and he wants to kind of just, like, you know, hang out and box a little bit. And so Tully tries to spar with him, and wouldn't you know, he gets a cramp after, like, two minutes, right? I mean, I was sitting there being like, yo, I've been there. No doubt. But like for him, he's kind of just humiliated. Right. And in spite of this, though, he tells Ernie like, hey, dude, you're impressive. I know you think you're just messing around, but you can actually be a boxer. So why don't you go talk to my old trainer, Ruben, um, and he can train you. And I think you could be a good, pretty good boxer. So after that, Tully goes to the local dive bar to drink his troubles away as he does. 
And that night he gets talking to a couple of regulars, a woman and her boyfriend at the bar. The woman is named Oma and she is played by Susan Terrell, as I just said. And we have to talk about Oma all right now. day long. First <laughs> of all, I love the only time I've ever heard Oma used in reference to like calling someone Oma is genuinely grandma's. Yes. Like I've heard people call their grandmother's Oma. Yes. Yes. And I just love that this like young, sloppy, <laughs> drunk woman is named Oma. Yes. It's definitely a contradiction in terms, because let me just tell you, Oma, she has been beaten down by life. Let's just yeah. say that she's at the bar with a plastic baby barrette hanging from her hair. <laughs> Like not like barely on her hair. It's just like literally about to fall off. All right. She's got this like little polka dotted dress. It's like a share from mermaid's dress. And it's like halfway unzipped in the back. And she's sitting there with her boyfriend and she's fucking going, telling anybody who will listen, including Tully that she's been like divorced, widowed. She's dated every race of man on earth and has been disappointed by all of them. Specifically white men. She says white men are animals. She says, and I quote, white men is the vermin of the earth, but she has these extreme highs and lows. And, you know, it's kind of a little, she's kind of a mess. Not going to lie. And she's pounding cream sherries. Which is like, that makes my stomach turn. It makes my stomach hurt so bad. Yeah. And she's, she drinks them like every night. I mean, it's just, God, I can't even imagine. But um, her boyfriend, Earl, is sitting next to her, kind of just watching her unravel, like, yeah. nightly, right? And he's a man of few words. And he just, like, kind of lets her have the floor, right? Because what else can you do is kind of his attitude. Um, you know, because he can't really, like, stop this train, right? and. I just have to tell you, Earl is played by Curtis Cokes, who was actually a boxer himself. And he was like, he was the one time world welterweight champion. So <gasps> there's, a, there's actual boxers in this movie too, which I think is cool. Yeah. So not long after this scene, Earl ends up in jail. And I think it's because he got into a fight with somebody who had a problem with he and Oma being an interracial couple. Right. Right. So Oma has a lot of guilt about this. And of course, she's at the bar again, crying and drinking. And Tully shows up again to drink. And they kind of have a bond. They kind of just bond together. Like, it's kind of in that way, maybe when you were younger, but it's kind of in that way that you do when it's like you and there's somebody else and you're the only people in the bar and you're both kind of like down and out or depressed. And then you just end up living together for a while. <laughs> You know how you do. You know how that works, right? Because that's what <laughs> happens with Tully and Oma. Like, it truly <laughs> happens that fast where you're like, truly. wait, I thought they were just drinking in a bar and now they are living together and he's making yes. her dinner. It's it's like there it's a very Charles Bukowski-esque situation between them, right? Mm -hmm. And he kind of tells her over and over in his drunkenness, you can count on me right down the line. It's like the thing he says over and over again. And they just kind of stumble out of the bar and then they're living together. They're just like playing house together while Earl is in jail. Right. And the thing that I noticed, though, is that I feel like Tully sort of needs this or something like he's. Yes. He needs to be in some kind of relationship almost to feel like he's accomplished something. Yeah. Cause the feeling I get to from, from Oma 
or that I got from Omoa watching this is that she needs someone to take care of her in a very real way. Like right. bare minimum, like basic human necessities. She needs someone to do that for her. Right. And he needs to feel like he can do that for her, but he can't. And she also is not receptive enough to actually. It's just a very delicate and strange relationship of need and want. Yes. That they're like not able to really fulfill for each other. Right. I agree. And look, I, I want to put this in a historical context. I mean, this is 1972 when this movie came out. And we talked about this in the Deliverance episode, sort of this like reexamination of masculinity within this larger era of women's liberation, gay liberation, civil rights, what have you. Because the thing about Tully and the thing about Fat City really is that this entire movie is filled with men who are kind of adrift or they're mm -hmm. underachieving, um, past their prime, desperate for work. Wives have left them. It's kind of like these are the kind of men in this film, right? And there's many scenes of Tully when he goes into the fields and the people he's working with, they're old men, people of color, mm -hmm. the poor. These are the people of this town. And this is what this movie is about ultimately. And it's not a surprise to me that this movie would exist in this moment in 1972. And that also that John Huston would make this movie because this movie is about failed quests and doomed journeys and whatnot, you know? Absolutely. And this the, the setting of it being in Stockton, for me, also really drives home in, in that sports movie, but not really kind of way, how not everyone makes it. Like, this is a very, you know, middle of the road kind of boxing circuit. Like they're not going to Atlantic City. They're not going to Vegas. You know, those the those those times where anyone does get a shot at that, it's like a singular instance of their life. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, absolutely. like this is the rest of their life is like day laboring and drinking and, you know, kind of reliving glory days as soon as something happens. Yeah. The, I mean, and the boxing is the, there's obviously boxing in the film. But it's more about like who the boxers are and, and what this like division or this circuit is made up of, because mm -hmm. like you said, there is no fucking glamour here. Right. The, these are people who are just trying to scrap together money. And I mean, honestly, these two trainers, Ruben and Babe, who are the best part of the movie, if you ask me, like the two of them. Yes. I mean, the actor that plays Babe was an actual boxer himself, too, which I think is cool. But it's like these are these trainers that are just trying to scrap together money. Everybody's carpooling to the fucking mm -hmm. event that's being booked by this guy who owns a bowling alley. I mean, there's no glamour, like I yep. said. And even the people who are participating in the sport and winning, quote unquote, it's not like they're getting big paydays. I mean, no. in fact... A lot of them are injured. They don't win all the time. This isn't that sort of like huge, big, like redemptive sports movie where it's like, this guy's winning every game. He's incredible. He can't be stopped. And now he's in Vegas. Now he's fighting a Vander Holyfield or whatever. No, this is like guys who are winning as much as they're losing. They have to pass around the same fucking pair of boxing shorts to fight in, you know? Yeah, it's bleak. And there are each other's meal tickets like these coaches are looking to make it off of the 
boxers in the same way that the boxers are hoping the coaches can get them decent enough fights so they can. It's like a very weird symbiotic relationship right. where no one actually makes it. Yeah. And, and I think that no one proves this point more than Ernie, who, by all accounts, he's young, he's handsome and strong. But even his path to being like a professional boxer is stalled because essentially Ernie's girlfriend tells him one night that she thinks that she's pregnant. And then wouldn't you know, a couple scenes later, you see Ernie lining up in the morning alongside Tully and all the others trying to find work on the farm. So it's like, just because you're young and good doesn't even mean you win, right? Exactly. Oh, exactly. And there's no, it doesn't mean you win at life. It doesn't mean you win at the sport. And it doesn't, there's no sure thing about yeah. this. Like it's it's a constant toil and struggle day to day for each and every one of these guys. And you can kind of see uh, with, you know, with Jeff from Jeff Bridges to Stacey Keach to the coaches, and you can see this line of who they're going to become. So Jeff Bridges will turn into Stacey Keach, who will turn into this coach, who will turn into like it's just like this very strange telegraphing of what their life is going to be. Right. And, you know, and the thing about the Tully character is that ultimately he just cannot help but fall on his own sword. That's basically what happens. And I mean, I'm not I'm not going to give away the ending of the movie, um, despite the fact that it, it's a very open ended ending, obviously. But the thing about it is that, like, you want somebody to win. And I think the part of this movie that makes it depressing and bleak is that it doesn't seem like anybody will. Right. Or it's a little TBD. And it, and, it, and like I said, it doesn't matter if you're young and virile. It doesn't, none of that stuff matters. It's like, you're still under the economic circumstances. You're still under kind of the pressures of trying to make it in this world. And just because you have dreams and just because you might be good at something like boxing, it doesn't really translate into instant success right absolutely there, there's one of the most i completely agree and one of the most beautiful illustrations of that for me in this movie is when there's a boxer named lucero who comes on the scene he's going to be in a fight and they show his journey to the actual match like you know getting on the bus and doing the whole thing and he's he's in this suit with a little suitcase and a hat and he shows up fights and then at the end of the match, you just see this dark figure coming down the hallway and it's him and he's put his suit back on and he's put his hat back on and he's carrying his little bit suitcase and he just gets goes back outside and you're just like, he's just going to do this again. He's going to get on that bus and go somewhere else and box. And that is his life. It is a dusty, drab life. And it's like these these are fighters who are almost compelled to do it. Mm -hmm. They don't get anything from it other than the actual fight itself. They're not getting glory. They're not getting fame. They're not getting money. They're just bouncing around doing this thing that they feel compelled to do. Right. And and you're lucky if you get like a glittery little robe. Like at one point, yeah. Ernie is like, he's like, Ruben gets him a little glittery robe. But guess what? He doesn't fucking win all of his matches. So it's that thing where you're like, oh, he's got a glittery robe. He's fancy now. But like, no, he's still... <laughs> scrapping he's still having a scrap and he's still getting knocked out look i mean obviously the movie is incredible it it works on so many levels for me i i know it's bleak and i know it's depressing <laughs> but 
fuck if I don't love a bleak 70s movie. I mean, and look, the Academy in the 70s absolutely loved to nominate women who were on the verge of completely breaking down. And I am thinking of Gina Rowlands in in the movies that we've already discussed. Right. But I definitely think that like that Oma character was so of its time as well. Absolutely. As these boxers were of their time. And I think that they, it just was a moment in time where women were floundering in a completely different way. Yes. Than these men. I agree. And it's like, you know, it is the tale that you rarely see, which is basically that no one's saving anybody. Everyone is having a hard time. Everybody is kind of a mess and there is no sort of person that comes in and and saves the day for somebody like Oma or somebody like Tully. They're just kind of together. They kind of commiserate. And then they, you know, basically figure something else out. And yeah, it's a little ambiguous. And a lot of people don't like ambiguity like that, but Mm -hmm. I love it. I think it's, I think it's very compelling and interesting. This movie to me is a classic, one of the most classic seventies movies, great acting, uh, the cinematography is fucking phenomenal. The whole vibe of Stockton and just sort of where this place, where this movie takes place is so, it's so evocative and so beautiful. I just, I, I love it. It's such a great film. I could not agree more. And that's what I like about it too. Like, I think we both like it for the same reason is that it's that slice of life movie yeah. where like you're, you're very deeply committed to the place and the people because of when it was made, who made it, and what it's about. So you're seeing something that just tells a story of a time. And I love that kind of storytelling. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I love I love this movie for being a sports movie, but not really. It's it's there's a lot more going on, as we've just told you. So Woo! Beautiful. Well, well, well. Look who's up next. Little Miss up next. Here we are. I, wow. Yeah, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to get into it with mine. This is going to be all over the place. Oh, my God. I can't fucking believe that you picked this movie. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Not every episode can be a banger, but I just want to say before, before I introduce my film, I just want to point out that I have now sweat a pattern into the collar of my T-shirt that looks like um, when those fucking dinosaurs in Jurassic Park like flare out there. The fucking gills. That's what I look like. Like it's just a, a feathery sweat pattern just developing along the neckline. It looks like I'm about to attack someone. You look like LL Cool J. The mama said, "Knock you out." Video. You're like I sweating really like into a microphone. Deodorant chunks. <laughs> Deodorant chunks in full effect. That is all I remember. Poor LL Cool J. That is all I remember from that completely iconic performance. Is that he used to hold his mic out like with his elbow straight, like perpendicular to his fucking face. And it was, look, do yourself a favor, go to YouTube, watch it. It is, there is no spray deodorant happening in that building. It is white deodorant chunks under some very long arm hair. And it was quite distracting. Yeah, it's the MTV Unplugged version. Mm -hmm. um, Because I do believe that there's a guy with long hair that's playing Mama Said Knock You Out on acoustic guitar behind him and is like going ham. That's all I remember is that guy in guitar and the deodorant chunks. That's all I remember. MTV Unplugged, another 
a conversation for another day in terms oh of God. how impactful it was in our goddamn lives. That's a whole other Ooh, podcast. That we got to start is. a new one. A side, a side podcast. So my film, my film was released in 1977. It was written by Walter Bernstein, uh, based on a novel written by Dan Jenkins of the same name, directed by Michael Ritchie. And my movie is called Semi-Tough. <laughs> This here is a movie about the second most important thing in the world, football. And also about the first most important thing. It's called Semi-Tough. Holy crap, this film. So I want to start by saying the first time I saw this movie was with Millie at the New Bev, the New Beverly in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles a couple of years ago. And I've since seen it like five more times. It is so we, it was one of the weirdest movies I have ever seen. Oh my God, so deeply weird. And it is about sports, but not really. <laughs> so, so my one sentence synopsis that I tried so hard to write, and I do not even know if this makes sense at this point. A love triangle develops between two Super Bowl-bound foot p- football players and their roommate, resulting in a completely bonkers movie that lightly parodies everything from marriage to self-awareness. Yes. <laughs> I tried it. I tried it, folks. <laughs> this is a highly satirical movie, uh, which is evident from the first sentence of the film, honestly. Yeah. And when I watched it this time, and actually the last couple times I've watched it, um, I'm taken by, I-, I will say this, I will say this. If you have a very delicate modern sensibility, this movie will be triggering to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because they are talking about politics and race and gender dynamics in very satirical ways that were right. really you know, prevalent in 1977. Um, but they're doing it in smart ways, mostly. But still, it's still jarring sometimes to see and hear that, you know, because it's of another time. It's of another time. This movie is confounding in so many ways. But I do I do think the the satirical nature of it is so nuanced and so subtle at times that you may be confused by it and offended by it. But, you know. Right. Yes, that is actually a really good way to because I was thinking about that a lot last night. Um, and I'm like, how how do you talk about this movie? Because it yeah. is so 1977 in its sensibility. And I was really kind of worried a little bit about like how to talk about this because it starts off with a bang. And we should talk about the cast a little bit first. Um, so Burt Reynolds plays Billy Clyde Puckett. Uh, he's a member of you know the Miami football team uh, with Chris Christopherson, who plays Marvin Shake Tiller. And they live together uh, in an apartment with Jill Clayburgh, who plays Barbara Jane Bookman, and her father owns the franchise. They've all been friends since they were like younger, like little kids. They've known each other forever. And there's instantly like this dalliance kind of flirtatiousness between them. But you can also tell that they're all just really good friends that know each other really well. This is one of the most bizarre aspects to this film. Yes. Okay. Is this idea that she lives with these two guys, right? Yeah. Two football, professional football players. And she is the daughter of the owner of this football team. 
And she lives with two professional football players, which these aren't people in their early 20s who just got out of college. These are like fully grown adults and they all share an apartment together. And it's this weird, like very sitcom y. Um, but also kind of like the best fan fiction ever. Completely. When I was a teenage girl obsessed with the Atlanta Braves, I know (laughs) I would have fucking written some fan fiction about me like living with two of the uh, the Braves players and they're both in love with me. Like that is the craziest premise for this film is this idea that they are roommates and kind of lovers in a way like it's so weird it's so bizarre and it's a little bit of like a feminist take because like she owns the apartment they don't (laughs) like she's just her dad the owner of the football team um who's played by robert preston big ed big ed bookman actually has a conversation with her at some point where he's like this is weird like your whole setup is weird you are a twice divorced woman living with two of my players and he thinks it's weird because she's not dating either of them he's like that is what's weird is that like you are you're not dating you're just a single woman living with these two men and it's fucking weird yeah so it's just strange how like the 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 it's almost like this weird fulcrum of like um, second wave feminism and, and his old fashioned ideas are meeting in the weirdest possible way where she's like, it's great. It's fine because I'm not sleeping with them. And he's like, no, that's what's weird is that you're not sleeping with them. Like if you were sleeping with yes. them, I could explain that to people. Yes. The fact that you're just like this platonic um, thruple from childhood. All of you are successful in middle age, presumably like they're, they're two professional football players at, at that level of their stardom do they need roommates do they need to be living with their childhood friend who i mean it's like all these people are like right i have no idea why this is happening and it's so weird and interesting (laughs) to me it's so bizarre and it's also again like jill clayberg is so funny in this movie and she's so like there's so some moments where she's so sad and you feel it, but it's still very comical. But she's also the kind of woman who, like, gets off a plane with a bunch of contraband shit from Africa and is like, oh, no, I wouldn't buy this from Africans. What are you talking And you're, you're like, wait, what? Like, my 2021 brain was like, why did I like this movie? What's going on? Like, what? Because it's very strange to hear this person who is otherwise, like, so forward thinking have such archaic ideas. And that yeah. is, like, the theme of this movie is very strange mix of of weird like archaic ideas mixed in with some modern sensibility that, and that's why it's kind of about sports, but not really because yes, what's really strange about this movie as we enter the film, the team has just made the playoffs. And then by the time they do make it to the super bowl, but by the time they get to the super bowl, you kind of forget that they are playing football. Oh my God. Totally. <laughs> like the super bowl is a fucking afterthought compared to what else is going on in their lives. And what's going on in their lives is that Shake, Shake Tiller, Chris Christopherson, um, while Barbara Jean was gone, oh, excuse me, while Barbara Jane was gone on her last excursion, he has discovered <laughs> this kind of transcendental sort of group that kind of encourages self-actualization called Beat. And um, the course itself is actually a parody of the Werner Erhard seminar trainings, EST, um, which were a six day, 60 hour course 
which fuck you. No. <laughs> there is no amount of self-actualization that will force me to be locked in a damn hotel dining room for six days with anyone. Absolutely not. That ain't happening. <laughs> that is ain't not happening. happening. But he's done this course, and suddenly he becomes very tantalizing to Barbara Jane, who has known him all his life and is seeing this different side of him. So this love triangle is kicked off because they start pairing up. And then the Burt Reynolds character, Billy Clyde, feels left out. But the way he expresses it is by, like, very subversively trying to win her away from Shake. And at first, it's so subtle that you don't even know what he's doing or why he's doing it, which is also why I'm like, this is kind of about sports, but not really, because it's about this guy who finally realizes the full extent of his feelings for this woman once she gets with their mutual best friend. Yes. Oof. So they're like these adults who are acting out this very middle school kind of plot. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's very complicated and weird, but also fucking hilarious and it's um it's definitely there's there's a few scenes i want to talk about in particular um one is the scene with erlene so there's this woman mm-hmm. named erlene who is down in the bar of this hotel where they're staying and the whole team it's like this very kind of jocular um like the team is kind of in with her on the joke but also really and she's kind of in on the joke about the notion that she wants to just, like, have sex with somebody. Like, she wants to have sex with the team or somebody on the team. Yeah. And Billy Clyde says something just, like, horrible, like a horrible joke to her that really knocks her down. And then when he goes up to his room and realizes that Shake and Barbara Jane are hooking up, he goes back down to the lobby to, like, hook up with her as a way to get some of his masculinity back or something. But the way that he talks to her in that scene is he's trying to get her to understand that he that they were both in on the same joke. But she is so nervous after that. It's like he takes her power away somehow. Yeah. By revealing it. Like she was okay when they were both kind of in that space of, you know, we're both just joking around. But then when it gets serious, she gets really nervous. And she doesn't really trust him. And you kind of realize that you don't know if you can trust this character or not, because you don't really know what his motivations are. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, there's another scene where <laughs> Big Ed, Big Ed Bookman, is doing something called creeping and crawling. Ugh. He's like crawling around his office. This is what I mean when I say it's like a satire of that 70s, like self-actualization, um, you know, like like current that like swept through our culture. Yes. And so this grown man is just like creeping and crawling around his office and trying to get Billy Clyde to do the same thing. And as they're discussing it, he's kind of encouraging Billy Clyde to like get in touch with his baser child self in order to be successful at football. And it just kind of points out the extent that some people will go to be successful in a sport, um, even if it doesn't make sense at all, like at all. Um so that's a kind of a weird, very weird scene. But then the biggest and weirdest part of the movie to me, which is also the most hilarious, Barbara Jane and Shake get engaged. And he basically tells her that she has to do this course, this beat course, 
so that they can have a successful relationship. Like they can't be in a, quote, mixed marriage if she doesn't believe. Right. She, he's clear. No, I'm not clear. Yeah. What did it said? He's found it. Is that what's the term that they yeah, use? It. Yeah, it's yeah. like you, he, she doesn't get it. Yeah. He doesn't get it. She gets it. It's like it. Yeah. He's it and she's not, which, you know, reminds me a lot of like that kind of indoctrination, that kind of, um, you know, like guru-y type of indoctrination religion type stuff where they're like, well, yes. you can't go outside the group. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of like the way that in, mo- in a modern sense, people would would discuss Scientology. Exactly. Exactly. It's very strange. So she decides, okay, I will do this course because I want the guru who is played by Burt Convy. And if all you know about Burt Convy is his hosting duties on 80s Win, Lose or Draw. Yes. This movie is a revelation because <laughs> he plays a character called Friedrich Bismarck. That is the wildest character I have seen on screen. Oh, my God. So he basically... They go to this hotel and Shake waves her goodbye and she's going to be locked in this. First of all, she's going to be locked in this conference room for two days straight. As they're as she's walking in, she's like, why is everyone bringing pillows? And he's like, oh, yeah, some people do that. Don't worry about it. The fact that he didn't tell her to bring a pillow to sit on those folding chairs for two days, I would be divorced already in my yes. head. Red flag. Like, this ain't happening. Red flag. So she goes in. She's deeply uncomfortable and Bert Convy starts out this meeting by calling everyone in the room assholes. <laughs> he's like, what's up, assholes? You don't know shit about fuck. Yes. Literally. And he literally yeah. says that, I think. <laughs> yeah. He's like, and I'm here to tell you that you don't know shit about fuck. And people are asking the funniest and weirdest questions. And they'll, they'll ask things like, what if I don't get it? And he's like, well, then you weren't supposed to get it. But if you're in the room, even if you're sleeping, you're going to get it. Like he's just purposefully convoluted as a way to, again, satirize these people who are searching for something that they cannot find outside of themselves. Like it just doesn't work that way, but he's capitalizing on their spiritual quest right? and calling them assholes and they are loving it. And it is so goddamn funny to see them in this room. And then at one point, Barbara Jane looks over and Billy Clyde's in the room. So mm-hmm. he is again doing all this surreptitious shit as a way to like get into her good graces. And he pretends to get it so that he can undermine the relationship when at the end of this conference, she doesn't get it. And she comes out like in tears, mascara running like a mess, doesn't get it. And he's like, well, I got it. And then he starts kind of ribbing his best friend, Shake, and being like, yeah, man, what if she never gets it? Maybe that's OK. And so he's doing all this underhanded shit to win this woman away from his. And they're all best friends. Very strange. Very and then strange. they go to the fucking Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is literally like a five minute sequence. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like totally not. I mean, it's like the smallest part of a football movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. And the, what, an, another hilarious scene to me is right before the Super Bowl, um, since Billy Clyde's the captain of his team, they talk to the captain of the other team, the Dallas team, uh, who and the captain of that team is Carl Weathers. And he plays this character yes. called Dreamer. It is the funniest fucking interview sequence I have ever seen where they're both they both end up basically comparing 
their bullshit self-actualization like religious intent yes pyramid power right pyramid (laughs) power carl weather's like oh you want on the pyramid how are you gonna try to beat me with fucking beat beat is out pyramid power is in it is so weird and hilarious and then they end up just kind of talking to each other in this weird jargony way but it is just so again about sports but not really because they're kind of parent they're kind of doing a satire of those interviews where you're supposed to be polite but also shit talk your opponent in a very democratic way. Um, so it just ends up being a very strange film that culminates in the weirdest wedding <laughs> I have ever seen on screen. <laughs> I remember when we saw it in the theater, I burst out laughing for five fucking minutes straight because there's genuinely a scene where like a choir boy rides across to the ground (laughs) like he's on this cross throwing things at people and then just rides it to the ground it is like mad max fury road like that goes (laughs) fucking guitar guys on those sticks on fury road except it's a cross (laughs) and a church (laughs) it's like this there's a point where this movie this movie just becomes so like like it comes like an acid trip almost oh my god and i don't want to spoil the ending but it's like the strangest fucking things happen in this movie in this weird love triangle that is so not about sports, but you can also see because they're again, they're they're playing these um, these kind of sports figures that are not really falling in line with the cultural perception of what football players are. Yeah. Like, I think the, the Brian Dennehy character in this film does that. Yeah. And he is like a whole conversation. God. No a whole kidding. conversation. Like he is like chewing glasses and dangling women from balconies. And like he is the personification of this hyper testosterone like lunkhead yeah but then you have you know again like the billy clyde and shake characters who are supposed to be these kind of like suave sort of you know ladies men kind of kind of dudes and they're not like they don't they know that that's what they're supposed to be but they're not playing into that at all yeah and that's kind of evident when chris christopherson does that commercial for um mitchum for mitchum and he's just joking throughout. They're both just like joking throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And so they're kind of playing against type and both wanting to be seen as deeper than they actually are supposed to be seen. So it's just, I don't know. It's a very, I do not even know if what I'm saying makes sense anymore. But it is a very confusing and funny and jarring film that is about sports, but not really. My goodness. Yeah, I... I have been wanting to unpack this movie with someone since we saw it at the new Beverly, because when we saw it, it was playing in a double feature. They were doing like a Burt Reynolds tribute, like throughout the entire month. And I think it played with like Smokey and the Bandit, which was kind of like, oh, great. Like the crowd pleasing fucking incredible Southern masterpiece, Smokey and the Bandit. (laughs) And then this weird sort of sports movie it's like a body sex comedy and a sports movie and a rom-com and like a weird satire of religion or of um, self-actualization movements of the 70s i mean it's wild it's the wildest combo of themes and tones in one movie and i we literally walked out of it going like this is one of the weirdest movies we've ever seen (laughs) 
because then you look at the poster. If you if you Google the poster for yes. Semi Tough, it looks like a fucking titty comedy. Yeah. It's like okay, it's like Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson in these really over the top drawings from old sex comedies where they're like bending over right before the snap behind these women with giant boobs and you know and it and they're like giving each other a wink like check it out we're behind them leaning over like isn't this fucking hilarious like in that corny sex comedy thing but then the movie is not that either that's the weirdest part because then you are watching the movie and you're like wait the first thing chris christopherson is talking about is like how he's transcended his fucking time and space in his own head yeah so that he doesn't even care about that shit anymore yeah exactly and i was like I was trying to figure it out, too, because, you know, Michael Ritchie directed this film and Michael Ritchie, he's done like two types of movies, really. He's like the I would say a king of like sports movie director. So, I mean, he did The Bad News Bears. He did Mm -hmm. Downhill Racer. He did Wildcats and Digstown. But he's also done stuff like Smile, which is like a satire of the pageant industry. And he's done. Right. You know, movies like Prime Cut, which is also very weird and kind of kind of crazy. And, you know, so it's just this thing where you're like, so there's this director who's kind of working in both satire and sports. Okay, that kind of tracks. But then what's up with like the the rom comness of it all? The thing that I think is pleasing about the movie is the idea that you have Jill Clayburg, Chris Christopherson and Burt Reynolds, who are all like super fucking hot and they're all they all have a very easy breezy relationship it's like even though it is the weirdest thing in the fucking world that they're roommates and sort of like all kind of this weird like love triangle it's like well damn it if it isn't the best love triangle you've ever seen because everyone's hot Bert's fucking plugs are on point like you know like jill clayberg's got them high-waisted fucking jeans and the little tied tied at the waist shirts and i mean chris christopherson jesus christ it's like you know he's just got a necklace dangling in some chest hair i'm like yo okay oh chris christopherson is just like a, a gleam smile and some mm. twinkly eyes yes and, and you will go oh my god i wish i could have sex with all three of these people at the same time of course <laughs> But this is just such a small part of the what the end the movie ends up being about, which is that it becomes about the the Burt Convy and the fucking yes. the movement that they're all kind of in, and, and and it's like the the marriage is contingent upon it. Man, it is like truly wild, just such a wild movie. Truly true, and, and it deserves. It's one of these films. I think I picked it because I feel like even though this movie could be a little bit jarring for people or upsetting or triggering in some mm-hmm. ways. It's so much like fat city. It's so of a time that if you understand that they are satirizing that time that they're in, it becomes a very strange diary yeah. of what we like, what culture was into and why they were wrong or right to focus on certain things about that, that type of culture at that time. Yeah, I mean, if you want to tie the two movies together in another way, besides the fact that they're sports movies, but not really, but it is that masculinity conversation of the 70s, because you do see people like here are two football players, one of whom is like on some fucking new age 
shit. And the other guy is unsuccessful at getting the girl for like 90% of the film. So it's just that thing where you're like, okay, well, that's an interesting idea right there is that you have these, again, people who are participating in a masculine sport like boxing, football, but also these guys are not like typical football players. They have moments where they are, but for the most part, they're not, right? Yeah, I think Brian Dennehy's character is like supposed to be the embodiment of what football players are. Like thoughtless, like masochistic, um, misogynistic awfulness. Yeah, just like lugs. Yeah. Yeah, just total lugs. But they also spend, there's a couple of scenes where they spend so much time kind of trying to talk him down from that behavior and talk him into being a different kind of person. It is very strange. Look, we are both completely hopped up on caffeine. (laughs) I have sweat all the liquid from my body. (laughs) This is a wild episode, but I, I, I think this movie deserves to be seen. And I hope that it's taken in the, the spirit with which it was made. Yeah. It is as rich of a fucked up text as the Holy mountain. I'm just going to make that. Thank you. Make that statement. And, you know, we really hope that you do watch these movies if you haven't watched them already for the episode. But shit, like I would love to hear people's takes on semi tough. Like I just I I just think it's so bizarre and it doesn't seem like it would be. But it actually is one of the most bizarre films I think I've ever seen. (laughs) So please, please let us know. I'm also afraid to hear your thoughts on <laughs> for that exact reason, because it is quite the movie to take to ingest. Yes, but we we welcome all the time. Any any kind of like email thoughts, um, opinions, if if you couldn't understand what the fuck was going on in Semitough, <laughs> if you are at the bar drinking cream sherries because Fat City was so fucking depressing. <laughs> if we've just completely blown our minds by this episode, please email us at I saw what you did pot at Gmail. Look, this was the whole this this episode was the Holy Mountain version of our show. <laughs> In the annals of history, they'll be like, oh yeah, that was that that one episode, the Holy Mountain episode <laughs> of I saw what you did. <laughs> As a person who has never done a psychedelic, I feel like I could explain the experience now just from recording this. Like, I get it. I get it now. Just get hot enough to sweat some fucking dinosaur feathers to your shoulders. (laughs) But that is it. That's a wrap on episode 39. We've done 39 episodes. Can't believe it. And for those of you who have just joined us, just discovered our podcast. Hello. Welcome. Hi, we are so happy to have you here. And lucky for you, you've got 38 more episodes to binge. You can listen on Apple, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Yeah, I saw what you did, Pod at Gmail. If you have any comments, questions, uh, anything like that. You can also hit us up on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, and we also have merch, if you so desire. It's on the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And we have so many bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium and only at Stitcher Premium, uh, where we are also now reading most of your mail 
on those episodes. So if you want to hear what your fellow listeners have to say or are curious about, if you have anything you want to tell us about working in movie theaters, your wild stories about falling asleep in a movie theater or things that happened at the movies, pretty much anything movie related will take at this point. Uh, and you can listen to those episodes on Stitcher Premium only. And if you use the promo code SAW, you'll get a free month. So you can catch up on all of them. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. so let's give them the movies for next week. Oh, boy. You're going to have to guess the theme. But next week's movies are Dead Poet Society from 1989 and If from 1968. Oh, my God. What's the theme? Guess it if you can. I feel like we were on acid during this recording. It was hilarious and wonderful. <laughs> I feel like I'm on acid because I had to watch Semi Tough again. So, I know. <laughs> holy crap, that movie! Just yes. watch it, please, so we can all talk about it because we clearly need to talk about it with other people. <laughs> See you next week, everyone. Thank you. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 